0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Ariana Simpson, uh, founder of Autonomous Partners, and Travis Kling, founder at Ikigai. Is that correct, Travis? Ikigai. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. What's up, Ariana?
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me as well.
0: Awesome. Ariana, you wrote this great post uh, called False Precision uh, on Token Daily. Uh, Talk about what uh, some of the main tenets of that post and what you were trying to achieve in it.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of of math and everybody likes to feel like they've done their homework and really dug into the details and come out with a clean solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thesis and the argument of, of the post was really that um, we have to tread carefully in that respect, because I think there are still so many unknowns um, in terms of how crypto networks are going to function, uh, you know, how velocity is going to play into the equation. Uh, is velocity even like a key metric that we need to be looking at? Or is it other things that are really going to be more influential on the price of the token? Um, you know, there's, there's really a ton of unknowns. And so while we have specific formulas that help us, uh, evaluate businesses, uh, uh, you know, on the equity side, I think we are still about parts of which, uh, equations, whether it's coming from, you know, how we value currencies or how we value businesses, how do those pieces mesh together? Um, and I do think this is fundamentally a new asset class. Uh, and so we just haven't figured out exactly the appropriate structures. So I, I, you know, was trying to encourage people to, uh, be a little bit cautious when coming out with, with new, uh, equations or formulas or valuation methods because, uh, you run the r- risk of saying, Oh, you know, I've got this great formula and it sounds really smart. Um, and it's very precise, but it can be very precisely wrong. Um, and so, you know, my sense is that, uh, you have to, yeah, sure, do the math, look at valuations under a number of different scenarios, but also be a little bit open-minded because you may just be off by an order of magnitude. And so it's more important to be directionally correct than, you know, precisely wrong.
0: Travis, I know you've given a lot of thought uh, to how to value crypto assets and, and different valuation frameworks. And um, I'd like you to give a, li- a little history of how we've uh collectively as space have thought about it the last couple of years uh, up till now. And we've hinted a, a little bit at some of the approaches, but maybe contextualize it A little bit. And then I've also, you've also thought about different valuation frameworks for store value versus protocol platform tokens versus different other types of utility tokens. So I'd be curious to hear more about that as well.
2: Yeah, sure. Trying to unpack that a little bit, not, not take too long. Real easy to go 90 minutes to answer that question. But, um, you know, simplistically, uh, we like to look at total addressable market. I think total addressable market makes a lot of sense, especially for stores of value. Um, Whether that's uh, uh, gold value, M1, M2 money supply, annual global remittance payments, um, just kind of, kind of, kind of broadly speaking, the tokens that are vying to be store value. What's the size of the pie that they're going after, and that and that makes sense. Uh, As as the the market has matured um, around a year ago, you started seeing folks uh, thinking about the relationship between network value and network activity. And NVT ratio was the, the, the first one of that. Uh, network value over transactions. Uh, basically market cap divided by like transactions per day. Uh, you can smooth that number if you want to do like a trailing you know 90 day moving average or or, or something like that. And and you know about a year ago I think the ecosystems uh, started thinking about uh, value in terms of uh, it as its relationship to, uh, to network activity. Uh, and some people try and call that like the a crypto PEU ratio type of thing. There's noise in that data. Um, uh, active wallet addresses, transactions per day, things like batching uh, from exchanges uh, that they weren't doing prior to like January 2018 and then started doing it, uh, uh, make a lot of prior periods to current periods look kind of apples to oranges. But directionally, again, back to Ariana's earlier point, directionally, a relationship between value and network activity makes sense. There's other ways that you can try and measure network activity with things like community vibrancy, and folks are trying to do that. And, and, and if you've been on Onchain FX, you can see that that uh, people track like GitHub commits or GitHub lines added, net of lines deleted, um, GitHub watchers, and, and things like that. There's there's been some really rudimentary, uh, attempts to look at like Telegram group members, uh, uh, Slack channel members. Those things are, are, are easily gameable, um, and, and, and don't make too much sense. But there is this general view that like you can measure network activity by, by the number of folks that are doing work to make the network better or participating in this ecosystem and, and, and creating a relationship between uh, uh, between value, uh, uh, there. Uh, you know, Bernitsky did some great work with, uh, with crypto assets and talking about the crypto J curve, which is this concept of current utility value versus discounted and expected utility value. And, and just like the general view that at, at the very beginning of a crypto assets life cycle, everyone's just guessing about, uh, about what what it could be worth today. And so all it is discounted expected utility value. But then people actually start using it and uh uh the speculation is replaced by actual users uh enjoying current utility value. And then there's this like sort of constant interchange between uh speculators and users and the sort of current utility value versus the discounted expected utility value and and, and there's sort of like many cycles that play out within that as the crypto asset uh develops. Uh, we talked about MV equals PQ uh, a little bit already. The punchline there being that, uh, in my opinion, velocity problem is like totally a real thing, and um, I'll just try and unpack that a, a, a little bit because people people talk about velocity a lot. So, um, so, th- so there's this alternative to the quantity theory of money that focuses on um, uh, demand. It's called the Cambridge equation. It's M equals K times PQ. And M is the money demanded by an economy. K is the percentage of income held in cash on hand. P is price, Q is quantity of expenditures. And that implies that velocity is one divided by K, or, or said differently, it's the inverse of the percentage of cash held on hand for use. So for crypto, Cambridge implies an ecosystem as a whole that seeks equilibrium by incentivizing participants to keep an amount of crypto in circulation equal to what is needed to satisfy the demands for that crypto by its participants, which is like total ecosystem utility, which goes back to like the CUV plus DUV concept. So how that equilibrium is reached, it depends heavily on the type of participant that is the marginal seller. So, so understanding velocity for crypto from the, from, from the very beginning, it's been a problem even more so than traditional markets because there's this handoff of value that occurs from the speculator to the user and back again. And that's totally revolutionary. Never seen it before in any other kind of financial instrument. And, and there's drastically different losses that those two participants probably employ. So from the onset, as you think about the life of a crypto asset, it's intuitively logical that velocity would change rapidly and violently depending on a whole host of factors. So the, the speculator shows up from the very beginning for profits. He's there to sell the crypto tomorrow at a higher price than he bought it today. And his velocity is, is therefore comparatively low, or at least it should be because he's waiting for the price to go up. And then the users show up and their velocity is quite high because they just want to use the thing. They're not concerned with profiting from the price going up tomorrow. And so at the beginning of, this crypt- of the crypto assets life, all the value is driven by speculators. They take a view on the potential value of the network to future users, and they're waiting for those users to show up and drive the value up so they can sell into it for profits. They hodl. The velocity is low. Then the users show up. And then their increased velocity must be more than offset by the increase in total ecosystem utility or that ecosystem goes into a death spiral. And assuming that 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 offset does occur, then the users start driving the actual price up. And at that point, the velocity of the speculators is entirely dependent on their view of the future value growth and who will be driving that growth. So if a speculator today thinks that the value tomorrow will be driven upwards by more speculators, he'll be inclined to sell into that. His velocity would increase. All else being equal, that's going to have a dampening effect on the on the upper price movement. Um, but if a speculator today thinks the value tomorrow will be driven upward by increased users, he will be inclined to hold on to his crypto because his expectation for future profits increases and his velocity would stay comparatively low. And that creates the reflexivity in prices that we've witnessed in crypto bull markets before. It's what we saw last year. And if a speculator today things the to value tomorrow will be driven downward by decreased users or a lower than previously expected increase in users, he'll be inclined to sell and his velocity would increase. And that drives downward price movement, all else being equal. And that creates the reflexivity in prices that we've witnessed in crypto bear markets before we're seeing that right now. And so, so the emergence of, of network effects in the context of token economics allows stock speculators for the first time ever overcome the bootstrapping problem by pulling a crypto asset into existence. But for the first time ever, we must seek to understand the intersection of speculators and users, the value handoff that occurs between those two participants and the resulting changes to overall velocity. So that's velocity in the context of, 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 of crypto. I, I, I wanted to spend time to try and uh, just, I guess just unpack that as as much as possible because the term gets thrown around a lot. Um, moving, moving from that, uh, Metcalf's law, right, you've heard you, people have thrown around uh, uh, Metcalf's law or some variation of Metcalfe's law trying to be applied to the crypto asset space. Simplistically, Metcalfe's law states that the value of telecommunications network is to the square of the number of users of the network. Um, it's expressed as like N times N minus one divided by two. So if you have, you know, five, five users, then five times four divided by two is 10. So so that's like the number of potential connections. There's actually never been anything found to exhibit value in relation to true metcalfs, but people started to use using modified metcalfs. So instead of it being being uh, proportional to the square, then you do some sort of adjustment based on um on uh, like a virality factor. And so in 2013, Bob Metcalf introduced this thing called the netoid function uh uh that, that takes into account like a virality factor and then the proportion of a percentage of a population that has already adopted the technology relative to the percentage of the population awaiting awaiting adoption, and the netoid function looks like this S curve, which like makes intuitive sense, right? If you have five telephones and you add a six, the incremental value is like very different than if you had like a billion telephones and you add a billion in the first telephone. So the really cool thing about the netoid function is that they there's a paper that was produced. Um, that uh, showed the netoid function to accurately fit Facebook and Tencent's revenue in proportion to their monthly active users. So there's like a mathematical relationship between, the, between those two things, revenue and monthly active users for Facebook and Tencent. That's, like, that's super cool, right? And, 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 and when you look into crypto, it like, looks pretty applicable. So then there's been a bunch of people that have tried to do modifications to, um, to do Metcalfs to try and, and then apply that to the crypto asset space It's, um, uh, there, like I said, there's noise in the data, uh, unfortunately, sort of directionally broadly speaking, uh, it looks pretty shitty right now. (laughs) Uh, basically either price needs to come down a lot or people need to start using, uh, 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 these, uh, these networks a lot more to bring sort of a a netaway type of function relationship, uh, back, back to fit, uh, uh market cap of, of crypto assets but like the, the interesting sort of like next step to this is that like when you're talking about value in Facebook like you don't speculate on Facebook right you just have users using the thing and then you have market cap but when speculators are uh are speculating with the instrument there's a potential to create like a noise noise in the relationship between monthly active users and network value in a way that, like, I'm not entirely sure Metcalf is gonna, is gonna hold on forever, um, or, or sort of be applicable. And it's gonna be sad if that's true, because I was excited about modified Metcalf, but, uh, I think that, that, that remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, I, I
1: think. Yeah, Rob, I think.
0: Go, go for it, Ariana.
1: Oh, I was just gonna add one, one quick point, which I think, uh, is an argument that the Bitcoin maximalists use often, but, um, I think actually applies to, A little bit beyond purely Bitcoin. Um, uh, I totally agree with, you know, needing to see real, real usage on a lot of these platforms. But, um, I think I saw somebody tweeted like, hodling is using. Um, and I actually agree with that. So, you know, I don't, I have never, uh, been a big, like, transactor in Bitcoin and then some of the other coins that, uh, you know, are kind of in the general purpose money category that I hold, um, because you know, in the same way that I don't only derive utility from spending my dollars, like I don't, I don't feel the need to go out and say, Oh, I have to move a majority of my bank account on a regular basis, because otherwise, those dollars aren't useful. Um, You know, just the fact that I can hold value there, and sure, it's volatile, whatever. But, um, you know, for me, it's, uh, it still makes sense. Like, that is a way of using. And that's not something that we have a real a uh, clear way to capture right now. So, uh, you know, I think that's just kind of one nuance to the the to the point that Travis made.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm I'm curious. Uh, question for both of you. I'll start with you, Ariana. Um, you, you you're both at the intersection of sort of you know crypto and and Wall Street finance in 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 different kinds of ways. You know, Ariana, you you pitched and and got as LPs, so you know, some traditional you know finance financial institutions. I'm curious, what do you as you were you know pitching. And during that process, what did you uncover as sort of the biggest misconceptions, uh, you know, Wall Street institutions have about crypto? And what would you say, vice versa, about how, you know, decentralized finance has around sort of traditional Wall Street finance? Um,
1: Well, I would say that, you know, the biggest, the biggest or most recurring uh, misconception I hear at this point, is just the narrative like, uh, that, the technology is great i believe in the blockchain but i don't believe in the currency aspect and um you know i think in many cases that is kind of the the popular thing to say and we kind of went through this period in 2015 so i'm surprised that we've circled back to it um uh, but that's kind of the most honestly defensible position uh if you work in a larger institution and you need to sound like you're innovative but maybe don't necessarily understand the space uh fully and the reason i say that is just that you know i think It's so important to think about incentive design in creating these networks. And I think that Bitcoin and some of the other networks have really brilliant uh, mechanisms to incentivize actors to behave uh, well and not uh, act maliciously and things like that. And so um, one of the issues is just that. Uh, if you start removing the financial incentives, then the whole thing falls apart. Um, and so, you know, I think in many cases, folks who haven't necessarily done a complete deep dive on, you know, how some of these incentives work, uh, don't necessarily fully grasp that piece. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the things that I've focused on trying to to explain is that actually, like, money is, uh, at least so far, one of the, if not the killer app um and you know that that's actually a really big innovation in and of itself um even though it might seem you know sexier or more in vogue to to jump to other use cases right now that's actually a pretty incredible uh shift because ultimately like money is something that everybody uses in some way shape or form and so uh having the potential at least to kind of revolutionize just the monetary aspect is really really powerful um and so i think You know, that's one of the the issues that I've kind of tried to to speak to people about as I've been, uh, you know, pitching LPs and and bringing them on board.
2: Totally, totally agree with that. I mean, the the narrative of like blockchain, not Bitcoin is just like it's you're just missing the entire point. I mean, blockchain without the crypto asset around it is like a, a Google Sheets that doesn't work very well. (laughs) and and uh blockchain is a service you're talking about revolutionizing the back office of of investment banks which is just uh i don't know pretty boring like i mean congratulations if morgan stanley like cut 75 bips off their uh like overhead because uh they're using blockchain now but from uh uh like it's just it's not even coming close to Accounting for all the revolutionary, uh, aspects of, um, of, uh, of what can happen here. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, y- y- you gotta dive into it a little bit more to, um, fully understand, uh, uh, that it's not just about the technology, it's about the incentive structures wrapped around it.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, Mark, uh, Mark Andreessen has said publicly that when he was building Netscape, like being able to embed money was the missing point. And that's the reason why he was so excited about Bitcoin to begin with. Like we've had database technology since the 80s. Um, so, you know, none of that is new. The new piece is the fact that you can now attach Monetary incentives to encourage people to perform certain behaviors, reward people for working on those networks, and things like that. And so, if you say, "Oh, the the money piece doesn't matter," you've really missed the point. Um, so, <laughs> I, a, I feel very strongly about that piece.
2: Yeah, and it's it's also like the I mean, you look at time and time again when when a uh, technology has come along and disrupted an incumbency. Like the incumbency, so rarely is the group that sees it coming. And is able to sort of like disrupt themselves, right? Like you would think that that the status quo would be best positioned to see something coming that can usurp their stranglehold. But just time and time, and time through history, that's just like not the way it works. So there's an aspect of that when like you ask like traditional finance about how uh,
0: about how some of this is going to work. Um, do you feel like we've gone too far on the other side of like? I feel like not now. You know, maybe I've just done too many podcasts with Bitcoin maximalists, but it feels like the the general sentiment is Bitcoin, not blockchain, like, like the total opposite. Do you feel like we've swung too far that pendulum?
1: Um, I think right now that seems to be popular because we're in a bear market. So what I've noticed is that um, and this this applies to any sort of uh, market, really not crypto in particular. Um, when sentiment is bearish and people are afraid, there's kind of a flight to quality typically. Um, and so within the crypto, and sometimes that just means move back to dollars because that's the safest, uh, quote unquote. Um, but even within crypto, I think sometimes that means a uh, flight to Bitcoin, both potentially in terms of, you know, actually what assets you're holding, but certainly also in terms of ideology. And so right now, if, you know, if you look at what coins are down, a lot of the alts are down like 80, 90 plus percent. Um, Bitcoin is down quite a lot, but not that dramatically. And so uh, I think within the crypto ecosystem, it is the quality. Um, And so last year, everyone was super excited about the forefront. Oh, my God, Bitcoin is so boring. We're so over it. Like, you know, Bitcoin is dead because it's going to be supplanted. Um, And that was happen to coincide, but I think obviously the two are related with a very strong bull market and this kind of this Cambrian explosion of all these different new projects. So I really think that that narrative is kind of swings back and forth depending on how excited and bullish people are feeling about new projects. Um, Right now, people are a little more scared. And so they're retreating to kind of the safer uh, realm. I think there's merit to, to both positions, to be honest, which, like I said earlier, is why I'm investing both in kind of more of the you know, monetary realm, but also in the infrastructure, uh, which is pushing that forefront forward.
2: Yeah, there's been there's been changes to Bitcoin's narrative like a lot. Like, remember a year ago when we were going to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin? <laughs> right. And then and then as, as the market realized that that wasn't going to happen, then you sort of switched to digital gold and and Bitcoin like right now, it doesn't work as a store of value. It, it, like anything that goes up 14x in in a year and then down 65% in 100 days, it's not a store of value yet. It's it, people, folks are speculating that it could become one day a store of value. But when you look at the characteristics of what makes a good store of value, you can you can look at Bitcoin and you're like, and it's all this is like all Austrian economics type of stuff. But you're like, ah, yeah, it actually it checks a lot of boxes, and especially relative to like the U.S. dollar, it checks a lot of boxes and. The supply is like even better understood than gold. And so, like, it, you know, it, it, it and so, you know, when you compare that and the markets, the market narrative changing around what Bitcoin is supposed to be used for. And, um, uh, and you compare that to the narrative of either plat- platform protocol tokens, um, you know, working or utility tokens, uh, being used, we're, we're, we're not, uh, we're like further along in being able to see and fit BTC into a store of value um, uh, valuation framework than we are figuring out like exactly how some of these protocol level uh, 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 platform tokens are going to accrue value, or how some of these utility tokens are going to accrue value over the long term. And in and, and my opinion, like like BTC dominance has been rising for the last like I think mean, three three months or so. And I, and in my opinion, that's been one of the main sort of drivers of that is, is folks waking up and realizing that a lot of these alts, like the token structure is just, it's not there yet. And, but that doesn't mean that there's not really smart guys working on it and, and, and people innovating constantly. And, and again, it is the Wikipedia open source software development approach so that everybody, you know, the Cambrian explosion, um, Uh, uh, type type of approach where okay yeah the first thing that came out was like an amoeba but then you know eventually one of those amoebas got like a shell on top of it and then the thing with the shell kicked everybody's ass for like a couple thousand years and then eventually like the thing with the shell like one day it got an eyeball and then the thing that had an eyeball then it was like kicking everybody's ass for like a couple thousand years and Uh and like we're making progress along those lines and when you take Moore's law, plus Metcalf's law, plus open source software, plus worldwide instant information dissemination, and you wrap all of that up in an economic incentive structure, that's a recipe for growth and evolution and adoption rates that we've never seen before. So like, if you think it's far away right now, it's just because humans aren't very good at understanding super linear growth, which is the rate that all of this is evolving at.
0: Yeah, I want to, totally uh, well said, I, I want to close out by getting both of your perspectives on the sort of crypto investing landscape from a you know crypto vc crypto hedge fund perspective both now and in the future and and to put something on the table I, I as Joey Krug uh from Pantera same question he he said that in the future he expects that the winners already exist you know Pantera Polychain uh your guys funds etc um that it's already crowded in the sort of traditional crypto vc hedge fund landscape but that uh new winners will be actually in crypto quant funds. And then I've heard a lot of other people say crypto quant funds are a terrible idea and, you know, they won't compare to traditional quant funds who get into crypto. But what is your sort of overall perspective of where you see the crypto fund landscape evolving over time?
1: Um, I can start. Well, you know, I, I won't really say much on quant funds because that's not my area of expertise. But um, I think that um, to Joey's point, Uh, I think there's a lot of money floating around in crypto. And so um, better teams and projects have the ability to be a little bit picky. So I do think that brand is important in terms of, um, you know, getting early access and and just securing allocations in some of these companies and projects. So, um, you know, I I agree in that sense that some of the, um, you know, newer funds, but older in crypto terms. So, you know, the policy and such of the world will certainly um, at the same time if people who are notable in the uh, crypto space start up new funds you know Fred from Coinbase folks like that um, I think they, they will obviously have a, a very good uh, leg up as well so yeah I, I think the, the current crop will certainly uh, continue to do well but there's room for a few more uh, um,
2: yeah so <laughs> this is one of this is going back to the beginning the beginning of this conversation. This is like one of the things that made me decide to start my own fund in the first place because uh, so many of the quote unquote fund managers that I saw were some variation of a tech bro in the Bay Area that put 200k into Ethereum in the fall of 2016 and turned it into seven bucks a year later and then got three bucks from his tech bro friends that did the same thing and now it's the back part of 2017 and you're a ten million dollar crypto fund. So if you've never invested for a living a day in your life, you in some cases never stepped foot into a, uh, uh, an asset management firm. And there's, there's no real reason to think that you're going to be able to generate a tra- uh, attractive risk adjusted returns on a repeatable basis. And hats off to those guys. Like, I mean, they had the vision for this shit when I didn't. So like, I'm not trying to take anything. I mean, that's awesome, man. You made it like a, it's an incredible trade, but, but it was an incredibly well timed, enormously profitable, One time trade and, and being able to do that, uh, uh, you know, over and over again requires a process. It requires an investment framework and it requires a bunch of processes that you put inside that framework. And then you go build a bunch of tools to go execute those processes. And that spectrum by and large, like you can't read it in a book and you didn't learn it playing World of Warcraft or uh, buying Molly on on Silk Road. And so, um, it's going to be. An interesting next few years and I think that uh the brightest minds in this uh in, in this space allocating capital are gonna you know continue to have uh, uh more and more success. And um the new entrants into the space are um if they if they come from a background of understanding how to build investment businesses, then I think they're they're gonna be uh, uh really well positioned for um uh you know for, 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 for success. In in terms of Specifically around quant funds, I, I I've, I've never personally invest like I'm I'm not a quant investor per se. Like I I haven't run a stat art strategy before. I've got a pretty solid layman's understanding of the way it works. Um, a, a a it's in my opinion it's a little early for uh, a lot of different types of like stat art strategies for crypto because the most foundational pieces of this ecosystem haven't been put in place yet. And if you're running a stat arb strategy uh, uh, today, uh, you're probably running it based on backtesting from price action of like the back part of 2017, and like what in the world does August 2018 have to do with fall of 2017 in terms of of, of, of market actions? And so it's hard to tell a quant that sometimes because these guys are like in data we trust and data we trust all the time, and I get that, but it's just it's a little early for 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 those types of things now. As this ecosystem evolves and this asset class matures, I mean, I would guess it's going to start looking like a lot of, uh, of uh, other traditional asset classes. And like I can tell you firsthand, uh, the machines have been kicking the human's ass in traditional asset classes like for about a decade now. And and um, I, I keep that sort of front, 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 mind, front of mind when building out Ikigai because we're taking like a very sort of quantum mental approach to it, which we think is the – The right way to do it right now sort of harnessing the power of big data to help humans make investment decisions but you know fast forward five years or ten years from now and the machines may be kicking our butts like they are in traditional asset classes so
0: on that note guys uh this has been a fantastic episode thank you so much for joining Where, where can people learn more about about you online and where should people uh what should people stay tuned for if you have any plugs
2: uh, yeah, sure. I'm uh, You can find me on 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 Twitter, uh, Travis underscore Kling, K L I N G. Uh, love to have debates about any of these uh, topics. We need more smart people talking out loud about uh, about these things to the further the ecosystem's development of it. And uh, Twitter, in some ways, it's a cesspool. In other ways, it's like a really good source of information. So that's good. And then, if you want to learn about what we're building at Ikigai. It's ikigai.fund, I K I G A I dot fund.
1: Um, for me, the best way is probably to follow me on Twitter, uh, just at Ariana Simpson.
0: Thanks so much, guys. This has been great. Yeah, I appreciate the time here. Enjoyed it,
1: Ariana. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.
0: Take care. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.